Heavenly Father, you promised that your word, which goes forth from your mouth, will not return to you empty, but it will accomplish what you desire, and it will succeed in the matter for which you have sent it. May your word have its way, we pray, in every heart this day, through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Please be seated. So, another question. This is a fill-in-the-blank. The most common cause of broken relationships is blank. Any ideas what that might be? The most common cause of broken relationships is blank. Some people might say, well, it'd be lying, maybe cheating, some sort of breach of trust, and those are all good candidates, but there's really one underlying cause to all of that. And we would call it this, unmet expectations. Unmet expectations. That's the most common cause of broken relationships. We get our hopes up about someone or something, and we often end up being disappointed. William Shakespeare wrote, expectation is the root of all heartache. People walk away from us because in some way, shape, or form, we fail to live up to the expectations they have of us. And sometimes they haven't even bothered to inform us of what those expectations are, and we may not find out until it's too late, or we may never find out. That's true not only of individuals, it's true also of organizations such as the church. People leave churches because we in the church do not always live up to their expectations of what the church ought to be. That may be true, but it's also true that Jesus did not call perfect people to follow him. He called sinners like you and me to follow him. And whenever you bring two or more sinners together in close proximity, conflict is inevitable. Christianity is not about finding the ideal group of people to be with. It's about forgiving the people you are with. So when we find ourselves sideways with someone else, sometimes, sometimes the problem is not them. Sometimes the problem is our unrealistic or maybe even uncommunicated expectations of them. So, Roman number one in your sermon outline, page nine in your bulletin. Doubt, or we could say conflict, arises when there is a gap between our expectations on the one hand and our experience on the other. Expectations and experience. And that's true of John the Baptist in our gospel reading for today. John is having doubts about Jesus, apparently. He's having doubts. And he asks, are you the one who is to come, 
or shall we look for another? Every one of us experiences doubts at times. Even the greatest among us do. The prophets Elijah and Jeremiah suffered horribly and they experienced doubts about God. Martin Luther had doubts, not about God's existence, but about his character. Is God still gracious to me or not? Has God abandoned me or not? And the list goes on. Mother Teresa, C.S. Lewis, Pope Francis, all have struggled with doubt. Now, doubt is not unbelief. Doubt and unbelief are very different. And Roman, or actually letter A in your outline. Doubt is double-mindedness. It's double-mindedness. And James talks about this in chapter 1 of his letter. Doubt is both a yes and a no. Faith is present, but there's also a questioning of that faith. And those two realities exist side by side. Now contrast that with number two, unbelief. Unbelief is the flat-out absence of faith. For example, the Apostle Thomas was not a doubter. He was an unbeliever before the risen Lord had appeared to him. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and thrust my hand into his side, I will in no way, shape, or form believe. That's the meaning of the Greek phrase. No way, shape, or form will I believe. Now that's a deliberate rejection of the good news that the other apostles had proclaimed to him earlier. Thomas flat out denied the gospel. Letter B, doubt arises from a faulty view of God. A faulty view of God. Or in John's case, let's be a little more charitable and say an incomplete view of God. That's John's case. Number one, so far... Jesus has fulfilled none of John's predictions. Remember what John was saying last week's gospel reading. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and cast into the fire. Jesus already has his winnowing fork in his hand. He'll gather the wheat into his barn, the chaff he'll just burn up with unquenchable fire. And so John is asking, in a sense, Where's the fire? <laughs> you know, where's the judgment? I'm sitting here in prison. One of the predictions about the Messiah is he'll set the captives free. I'm rotting in jail. Jesus may cast out evil spirits, but he does little or nothing about evil men. The Pharisees, whom John calls a brood of vipers, well, with them, Jesus shares meals. He eats with them. John is in prison for doing the right things, for speaking truth to Herod, something no other religious leader had the courage to do. And Jesus does nothing about it. The irony is, Jesus will do those things, John predicts. 
He will cut down every tree that does not bear fruit. He will gather the wheat into his barn, and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. He will do those things when he comes again, but he's not doing them yet. So there's a gap between John's expectations of Jesus and John's experience of Jesus. And John's doubts are understandable. Number two, God routinely acts in ways we do not expect. He acts in ways we do not expect. Jesus says in our gospel reading, verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and violent men take it by force. This is why Isaiah writes, and God says, and through the prophet Isaiah, my ways are not your ways, says the Lord. The Son of God came into the world not to cause violence, not to perpetrate it upon others, but to receive violence, to suffer violence. And he calls his followers to do the same. He calls us to suffer violence from others. In other words, God's kingdom comes into the world with the result that evil men commit violence against God's people, and God's people must endure it. And we would ask, is that what God's kingdom looks like? And the answer, at least for now, is yes. God could employ strength, even now, to destroy sinners like ourselves. But the only way for him to save sinners is not through strength, but through weakness. God himself becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. God will accomplish more through weakness on the cross than through brute force on Judgment Day. The Judgment Day will come, as John has predicted. Unfruitful trees will burn, the chaff will burn, but thankfully that day is not yet. Because of God's weakness, visible at the cross, Today is a day of mercy. Today is a day of grace for all sinners, for you and for me and for all. Rejoice and be glad in Christ. Roman numeral two. Don't be ashamed of your doubts or of your questions. All of us have them. All of us are acquainted between, we're acquainted with the gap between our experience of God and our expectations of God. So don't keep your doubts to yourself. Don't keep your questions to yourself. Letter A, share them with someone more experienced. And B, John took his doubts to Jesus. He sent messengers to Jesus asking, are you the one who's to come or shall we look for another? And what does Jesus do? Notice, Jesus does not point to himself. That would be self-promotion. And that only creates doubt about his person, not faith in him. Instead, Jesus points John's messengers to what their own eyes have seen and what their own ears have heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the lepers are cleansed, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. So number one, 
seeing what Jesus does and hearing what he says is the only way to build faith. Years ago, a member of Grace came to me and confessed his doubts about the real physical presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper and also about God's power at work in baptism. First thing I did was I thanked him for being honest and for coming to me and sharing his doubts. And I told him that many, if not most of us, have had the same doubts. We struggle with the same issues at times. And I told him, I said, here's what we do about it. So we opened our Bibles and we went straight to the words of Jesus and to the words of his apostles because their teaching is the teaching of Jesus. There's no greater authority than Christ. And I told him, I said, let the text speak to you. Rather than imposing or reading your own meaning into the text, let the text have its way with you. We did that. And the man's doubts subsided and his faith expanded. So if you have any doubts today about what God is doing or saying or not doing, and sometimes we do, bring them to Jesus. Hear him. I'll say more about that in just a moment. Now look at verse 11 in your gospel reading. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, point number two, Jesus does not malign John. He exalts or honors his disciples. That's what he's doing here. Jesus speaks highly of John because John is the last in a long line of distinguished prophets. But John belongs to the age of prophecy. We, you and I, belong to the age of fulfillment. John baptized with water, but Christ has baptized us with his Holy Spirit. John pointed to Christ, but you and I take Christ into our mouths as we consume his body and blood at the Lord's table. John prepared the way for Christ, but now that Christ has come, Christ dwells within us. He did not dwell within John. We are not better than John. We are more privileged than John. John lived in the era of prediction. We live in the era of fulfillment. That is the difference the coming of Jesus makes. His coming exalts us above even John. And number three, Jesus exalts John despite his doubts. And he honors you and me even more than he honors John. There will be times in your experience of God that your expectations of the Lord will fall short of what the Lord is saying and doing. And you will ask, God, are you there? Do you care? And when that happens, and when it happens, not if, but when it happens, look to Christ. Take your doubts to Jesus. 
Consider what he does. Hear what he says. He is the love of God in the flesh, visible. His words and his deeds are the antidote to doubt. And if Jesus is gentle with John when John has doubts, he will be gentle with you. You know, 700 years before Christ, Isaiah wrote these words about Jesus. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Now that's how gentle Jesus is with all who doubt. Sometimes we're like the bruised reed. Sometimes our faith is like a faintly burning wick. If you experience doubt about God and his love for you or his love for others, if you doubt God's goodness because of some tragedy or injustice you've experienced, please don't keep them to yourself. That's dangerous. Share your doubts with me or with someone you trust. And like John the Baptist, we will bring our doubts to Christ. We will look at what he does. We will hear again what he says. He alone can strengthen every bruised reed. He alone can fan into flame every smoldering wick. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.